You're listening to the Joy Junkies Show podcast, episode 409. You can find information on anything referenced in this episode at thejoyjunkie.com slash 409. You're listening to The Joy Junkie Show, your source for getting your shit together in love and life. Wouldn't it suck if I really talk like that? Without further ado, here's your host, life coach, speaker, all-around badass, Amy E. Smith. Well, hello, pod people. Amy here, and I am excited to talk about a subject today and for the next two weeks, we're going to do a, a little series on self-abandonment. And this concept was presented to me by two beautiful women who are a part of Cheaper Than Therapy podcast that I had the great privilege of being on with hosts Danae and Vanessa, both of whom are therapists and quite accomplished in their own right. And so I thought it would be an amazing opportunity to bring each of them on individually to talk about what the hell self-abandonment even is, why we do it, how to kind of spot some of the triggers or the ways that that shows up for us in our lives now. And I think that you'll find in these conversations that it's very similar to many of the concepts that we've talked about on the show thus far. And when we abandon ourselves, we are essentially saying that everyone else is more important. Does that not sound familiar? Oh my God. So in fact, when I was researching for this series, I found a really great blog. We'll put it in the show notes. A really great article by uh, NAMI.org, which stands for National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they define self abandonment as when you reject, suppress, or ignore part of yourself in real time. In other words, you have a need or a desire that you would like to meet oftentimes on the spot, and you make the decision not to meet it. So how that would apply to us and kind of the work that we do on this show is let's say that you are exhausted, you get home from work, and a friend calls and asks you to come over because they really, really need some help navigating a difficult relationship, even though what you really want and probably need is to decompress from an exhausting day of work and all you want to do is kind of curl up with, you know, a nice meal or something like that and just have some quality alone time. Self-abandonment in that instance would look like disregarding that need, that desire and choosing to put that per person in front of yourself. Now, is that is that something that we're always going to do? Not necessarily, right? It's not that self-abandonment is always this negative, horrible thing. There are times in our life, and I've definitely had this in my own uh, experience, where I've actively chosen, I'm going to go be there for a friend because that's more important to me right now is to support them. I think the problem happens is when we chronically self-abandon. And we'll talk about this a little bit in my solo episode later on in the series. 
But that is a huge message to your self-worth when you consistently over and over and over again take care of everybody else. Make sure everybody else's needs, wants, opinions are tended to over your own. So both Danae, who I'm going to have on this week, and then Vanessa, who will be on next week, talk about this concept quite frequently in their own practices, and they run various retreats of the under the same topic. So let me tell you just a brief bit about Danae, and then I'm going to give her a ring, and hopefully I can catch her. You know how that goes. Sometimes I catch them at a very inopportune time, so hopefully she has some a moment to speak with me. As I mentioned, Danae Logan is a therapist, a mindfulness coach, a yogini, a tenacious wisdom seeker, and she is also a fellow Californian, although I do feel like I identify as a North Carolinian these days. In her work with her clients, she is incredibly nurturing and present and has a huge value around authenticity. I think that will be quite apparent if we're able to catch her. And she specializes in offering tools for reclaiming the self that we've been conditioned to abandon throughout our lives. And that's something that I really want to dig into with her and look at what are the ways that we've been taught to abandon ourselves through our various sources of upbringing. And she helps people understand addictive patterns and communicate more effectively. And she is fantastic. I am going to give her a ring here in a second, but I wanted to just mention before I get her on the line, if any of you out there are going, oh, shit. I didn't know there was a name for this, but I do that shit all the time. If you've hung around with me for any any length of time, you'll know that I talk a lot about people pleasing. That's a huge piece of abandon abandoning yourself. It is let go of you and cater to everything else beyond yourself. And I find that for many of us, we get to this place where we've reached our threshold of abandoning ourselves where we've now leaned too heavily on perfectionism, on self-doubt, on trying to control things, on people-pleasing, and we're coming up empty. And we realize we can't stay in these same relationships. We can't work in these same environments. We're just fucking unhappy. And at the root of all of that, y'all, is the belief in self, is truly a sense of self worth? Do I believe that I have value? Do I love the individual that I am? If that is not something that you can jump up and say, fuck yes, I love who I am, then I really want to invite you to go to thejoyjunkie.com slash workshop. Have a watch through a completely free masterclass that I have put together for you. And it chronicles the work that I do in my signature program, which is called Deep Down and Dirty which is spans over about four months time. It's a deep group immersion where we untangle all of these things. We start dismantling some of these deeply held beliefs that have you locked into this idea that you must make everybody else happy or you have to control everything or you're leaning on these sort of archaic defense mechanisms that are no longer working. And it usually hurts in one major area. That's what I see consistently with people who come into the program. 
and it is that work really sucks or they're really contemplating leaving a relationship or some other major life shift has happened that has forced them to start looking at okay, the common denominator with everything is me and I don't like me. So how can I shift that? How can I change that? So your first item of business, if you're interested in learning more about Deep Down and Dirty, is to go to thejoyjunkie.com slash workshop. Have a watch through that masterclass at the very end. If you're interested in learning more, you will have an opportunity to book a completely complimentary call with a member of my team. And then you can talk about if Deep Down and Dirty might be a good solution for you going forward, if that's uh, sort of an investment that you want to make in yourself to start changing this shit, right? So if you can't imagine going on this same path for another year, five years, 10 years, and waking up feeling the same goddamn way about yourself please just go watch that workshop. I think it will shed a lot of light for you. All right. So that being said, let's uh, dial up Danae and see if I can catch her. Hey, Amy, what's going on? I just got the kiddo out the door, settling down with a cup of coffee. I'm so excited you called. Oh my gosh. I'm glad I caught you. Okay. So you, I'm hoping you have a little bit of time. I'm over here with the audience uh-huh. and we are starting off a topic around self-abandonment. And I know mm. both you and Vanessa are queen bees yes. when it comes to this. Uh, do you have a handful of minutes to kind of discuss some stuff? Oh, absolutely. My favorite thing to talk about, <laughs> please. Oh, Perfect. Perfect. So I, you know, I think when, when I came and did your show, we really recognized that we had a lot of parallels between the work that, that we both do in the world, Mm -hmm. but I would love for you to just start off by explaining how do you even define self-abandonment? That's such an interesting question. And I feel like it's something that is continuously alive for me. I'm starting to experience ways that self-abandonment shows up in so many areas of our lives and the ways that we have been conditioned to be, Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I sort of believe that we are a culture of people that are raised for a fair amount of codependency, meaning, you know, I am okay if the people around me are okay. And so um, a lot of our sense of self, capital S self, um, gets really suppressed early in childhood. Um, One of my favorite psychologists, um, Dr. Gabor Mate, talks a lot about how we as human beings have two fundamental needs. We need um, attachment, because obviously like um, we need it for survival from our earliest state of being. And then the other fundamental need is authenticity. But attachment will always trump authenticity. And so what I find is that so many of us in early childhood, when we are attempting to attach to our caregivers and then, you know, our community and our our social connections, we learn to self-abandon in order to attach. And, you know, that need within us for authenticity, that need within us to be our most authentic selves is always there, but it's something that we 
condition ourselves to suppress, to turn away from, to deny as like a fundamental human need. And I believe until we get to a space where we learn to sort of integrate these two things, we will continue to suffer. And so I'm really passionate about um, how we do this sort of reclaiming of our authentic self that we've been conditioned to sort of suppress. Interesting. It's almost, it, it almost sounds like a very fancy clinical term for people pleasing mm. or just, yeah, for sure. you know, or <laughs> catering to others prior to self, you know, something that, that we've talked about before that I think is really important to underline is we do that because we're trying to take care of ourselves. We're mm. not like, let me go ahead and just disregard my own needs. You know, we're like, oh shit. If that person gets really loud, you know, maybe a primary caregiver and I have this need of hunger. Maybe it's not the best time to speak up and advocate for that hunger. Maybe it's, I need to placate and make sure that caregiver doesn't yell and scream at me. Yeah. Right. So we learn, okay, here's how you can caretake for yourself by abandoning the things that you may need. Absolutely. And we're talking, you know, primal, um, fundamental survival needs, you know, that existential anxiety that we have as babies. Like, you know, whenever you look at a baby, when they first, um, are born and they're sort of like arms and legs flailing, unless they're swaddled, it's that like, I know on a primal level, I need these people around me to survive. And one of our deepest human fears sort of instinctively is exile, that I will be exiled from the group that I will not survive. And so, so many of our survival mechanisms that, you know, at some point end up being maladaptive survival mechanisms, we, we developed for very like real reasons because we needed them and sure. we knew we needed them when we were little. These are the people that I need to take care of me. If they turn away from me, if I'm exiled from this family unit, I need them to survive. Right. And so um, in adulthood, a lot of us are still sort of acting from that space of survival, but it's not that same um, real need anymore, I think. It's right. It's almost like it's become this ingrained neural pathway. And it's almost, and tell me if you see this with your clients, They almost it's almost like they get to this place in their life where all of those defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms of making everybody else's needs more important than theirs, mm -hmm. they get to a place where that stops functioning well. Mm -hmm. And- and they kind of go, oh, this is costing me too much, but it's been so embedded in the subconscious and how they're operating that they go, how the fuck am I going to turn this around? Do you see that a lot? Absolutely. You know, I feel like I talk so much about the devil that we know is really hard to turn away from, even if it's causing us so much suffering, even if I feel like there is no joy and aliveness and excitement in my life, because the thing that I'm doing um, is literally draining my life force. This is what I know. I don't know what another way of doing things would feel like, would be like. And so I stick with what I know. And I find that so many of us can end up, you know, literally sleepwalking through an entire lifetime, just trying to sort of stay safe enough, you know, um, just not stepping outside of the box of what I know will least keep me safe. Right. Well, I mean, even, even though it's so unbelievably uncomfortable, it's familiar, mm -hmm. right? And so the brain goes, okay, familiarity equals safety, even though it also equals discomfort, Absolutely. you know? And I, I think we kind of get to this place where we start to have this awakening or this awareness around 
oh, I can't keep entertaining relationships like this. I can't keep entertaining workplaces like this where I'm sacrificing anything that I might need to be fulfilled in order to make everybody else happy. So I'm curious, okay, obviously we start off, it's formulated family of origin or in our early years, I'm guessing. And then we get to sort of our adult life. Is there anything that you can say, like, here's how self-abandonment really shows up. This is what it looks like. So that maybe people listening could kind of go, oh shit, that's me for sure. I'm a single woman now after being married for 11 and a half years. And um, I run a lot of groups for single people, right? And so how we like really stand in empowerment and our singlehood and how we sort of use this as a really fertile time and space for getting to know ourselves. And what I find is, and has been so fascinating to me is as we get back into the realm of dating and, you know, it had been so long since I had dated that it's like anything else. Like I was a yoga teacher for a lot of years and I used to, um, I used to teach classes and I would like talk about things and I, you know, and like why you need to just like muscle through it and here's what you need to do. And then I would go to like a really hot class that would like kick my ass to the point of like being in deep empathy for my students. And I'd be like, Oh, I needed that because I had forgotten how really difficult this is. And I feel like being back in the world of singlehood and dating has really done that for me because I had so many, you know, single women clients that I would be like, oh God, you know, and I, I'm saying that like jokingly a little bit, but like stand up for yourself, like, you know, yes. of self in this. And all of those things are so easy for me to say from my safe container that I was in as a married woman. Right. But when you're back yeah. in this space of the deepest vulnerability of really liking someone and really wanting them to like you and all of your attachment wounds start to get fired up and you're standing in front of them, you know, a little bit. What's that movie? You're standing in front of someone, you know, movie I'm talking. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, is it Bridget Jones? No, the one with uh, Julia Roberts where she's like, I'm just a girl standing in front of a guy asking, can Notting Hill is the movie. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's literally that thing of like, standing in front of someone and saying, can you love me? Right. But that's not what we do. We don't show our authentic selves and say, can you love me? We start to morph and shape shift and attempt to be who we think we, or we need to be in order for them to love us. And it's, I come from a depth psychology background. So I think it's like our deepest opportunity to do some shadow work and go back and really look at like, what is this bringing up for me? Like, how do I sort of go back into childhood and notice like what this is representing in terms of what I learned about my worth and what I need to do in order to be worthy of love? And how do I stay with myself when someone is rejecting me? And so, I mean, it's fascinating. And I like, I love having these conversations with singles because I think it's one of, you know, I mean, it shows up in so many areas of our lives, but I see it as like such a visceral place that we start to self-abandon really quickly, you know? I love that you brought that up because I've been recognizing similar, similar things for myself where it's like, it's like as a practitioner, you get, if you get too comfortable mm. in your doctrine and your, here's what the message is and here's how you do it. I really feel like the universe is like, Nope. Here's some hardship. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're going to get your, you're going to get your shit in order. And I've been really feeling like that a lot around body image because I'm the heaviest that I've ever been. And so I've dealt a lot with, with clients who are like, I don't want to go to this event 
because I'm heavier and I don't want people to see me. And same thing, who, who fucking cares? You get just stand in your power, blah, blah. And now I'm going, oh shit, I got to reckon with that <laughs> a little bit myself as well. But I, I'm thankful for those gifts and I'm watching my own process of abandonment and as it relates to my physical body which I know you've talked about a lot too. I was reading a brilliant post of yours on Instagram about how you had really judged or not allowed really acceptance around or your own physical vessel, mm. right? I'm, I'm, I'm too dark or I'm too this, or I'm too that where, uh, that's another form of abandon, abandonment, Absolutely. right? Like not allowing ourselves to reside in our physical Shell. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think that that is, and I think there's so many elements of accepting ourselves and being in this space of inner belonging is my co-host on a podcast, uh, Vanessa Bennett. And I like to talk about like how we shift into the space of inner belonging. I think it's like a constant lifelong practice, but with what you were saying about body image, there's so much about my inner child wounding that had to do with, you know, this skin that I'm in and being in this body. And, um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and I was sort of like, I love to joke that like the school I went to, I was the diversity. And so I very (laughs) always felt othered, always felt like the, you you know, my friends would take me to the country club and like nobody had ever seen a black kid before. So like the entire room would like turn and look at me and I'd be like, what? what's happening? Um, but just oh deeply uncomfortable in my skin, sure. you know, and I think for so much of my adolescence and, you know, um, certainly like my early twenties, like the thing that I did to, uh, defend against that was like, you've got to be perfect. You've got to like, you've got to act perfect. You've got to be perfect. You've got to have the perfect body, anything that you can do to make people forget that you're different. All of the stereotypes people might hold about black people. You've got to show them at least through you, those things aren't true that, you know, you, you are enough um, for them, but maybe not for yourself because you're always sort of morphing again into who you think people need you to be. And, you know, I think I spent so many years at war with my body, you know, as you're speaking to, I think Mm -hmm. so many of us as women do. And I had a child and it was literally like, the jig is up. (laughs) Like I surrender. I have lost the war. You know, I had a 10 pound baby and literally Jesus. I was that woman that like everyone I crossed paths with were like, you're having twins. And I'm like, you can't say that to me. (laughs) I was the largest pregnant woman ever. You know, on the other side of that, I had this beautiful boy. And yet I was like in such a deep space of sorrow because I felt so disembodied. I felt so uncomfortable in this skin and there was nothing for me to do to get control of it. You know, I used to have all of these ways that I would like, okay, here's what I'm going to do to get, you know, I'll just grab some like hot yoga classes or whatever to get, like, get this in control. And I couldn't, and I had no choice, but just like sit in the discomfort of it. Ultimately, it was just like a space of surrender to like, I've got to figure out how to live in the skin, you know, um, and not be this body. And for me, there was such deep healing that came in that Amy, because like for the first time in my life, like I couldn't outrun, like, this is it, this is you, like you either love yourself in this form or you don't, but it's not going to change, you know? Um, and, and for me, that was, I don't know, it really unlocked something, that space of motherhood. And I find that so true for so many women. There's like this, um, 
that shift from maiden to mother where you really like, there's like a reckoning of like, who am I now that I'm not this thing that I've been, but I am, I am something new and, you know, like initiatory processes that ask us to like really step into this Mm -hmm. like next version of self, I think. And can probably be applicable to so many different transitions. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking of people who, get some sort of radical diagnosis and now you feel sort of like betrayed by your body, right? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be that you, you know, have gained weight, uh, or the transition of going into motherhood. It can also be loss of identity in some way. Like maybe you were, you were the breadwinner for your entire life and now you've gone back to school and now there's this reckoning of who am I in this phase of my life or this season? And I think all of those things, it really, it really is an opportunity for the breakthrough, Mm -hmm. but we resist that breakdown so much that sort of the galvanizes us into the breakthrough. And to, to your point, it's like when you can just sit and go, okay, if I'm not running away from this body or this diagnosis or this life transition, if I'm actually sitting with me and who I am, what does that look like? Like, what does deep inner belonging really mean? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's probably going to be a different answer in every, every step of the way. The question that I have made my, my prayer to the universe when I'm in those moments. And I believe that all of us will go through several of those initiatory moments in this lifetime, um, to your point. And I think when we're in these deep pain points, these deep points of discomfort, you know, I don't want this to be what it is, but it is inevitably the case that this is what it is. So how do I, instead of being in that space of resistance, kicking and screaming against what I am confronted with, how do I get still and ask, what has this come to teach me is such a different conversation, right? It's such a different experience of whatever the thing is. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking how much lately I have just felt like we are in such a collective space of that right now that we are being Mm -hmm. birthed into something new, that there is something um, that is dying on a collective level that wasn't working Mm -hmm. systems where, um, you know, we weren't recognizing oppression and we weren't recognizing that like all of this doesn't work for everybody. And some of this is dying off and there's all this resistance, right? There's all this like, nope, we will not die like the way things are will stand and the longer that we are in this space of resistance the deeper the suffering I believe you know I love to again like sort of using that birthing analogy but it's just to me the most like visceral clear like what an initiatory process becomes like because there's you know there's contractions and there's like fear and this like Mm. you know deep pain points. And it's like, I think that's a little bit like 2020, like it's like there's contractions and then it feels like things calm. And then there's like all this racial injustice and then things calm a little bit and then another variant and then things calm. Right. And it's like, um, we are being birthed into something new. There's a lot of resistance to the contractions. There's a lot of like, no, 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 we're not doing this. And the more we resist, I think the bigger the pain, you know? Well, it's interesting because I love this idea that you just brought up about what's the learning? Like, what did I need to experience this for? And I find that that question, we have to be in the resistance first before we can get to that surrender Mm -hmm. place. 
because I, I find that it can almost be like a spiritual bypassing or a toxic positivity when you're in the throes of your anger or your frustration about um, a, a separation that you're going through or a rejection or something's happening with your, your physical health or whatever. And just to go, what's the mm-hmm. lesson? It's like, no, fuck off on that. Like, I'm not ready for the lesson right now. I need to be furious and upset and I need to feel my feels and not bypass what I'm experiencing so that I can get that, expel that out and get to the place where I can actually dig for the lesson. And I had a a metaphor that came up from my coach and she's, she's brilliant. Her name is uh, Courtney Webster. Mm -hmm. Birch. And she, she said, I get this visual of you. Cause I was going through some stuff in my business. She goes, I get this a visual of you. And I think you'll appreciate this of, you know, when you are teaching a dog how to be on a leash at the very beginning, and they just want to plant their ass and they're like, Nope, not doing that. And they're pulling and pulling and pulling. And then you're pulling like, no, we are going to do this. We're going to walk and they're resisting. And, and and you're both so determined, but you're not fucking getting Mm -hmm. anywhere. That's how I feel like it is sometimes, right? Like where you're like, no, but I have to be perfect, but I have to make everybody else happy, but no, but I have to have that person love me. I have to make this, this business pan out the right way Ah, until you go through it and you can finally let go. Then after you process that emotion, then can you find the learning? Do you, do do you find that? Absolutely. And I got to say, you know, my work is always to come into awareness of when I'm in the spiritual bypass, to be honest, because I think that so often when you have had these points of like, oh, when I just surrendered and looked for the meaning, then everything was okay. Right. And what we forget is that we have to be in the depths of the muck and the deepest pain points. Like I, I find exactly what you're saying to be true. It is not until I'm at the point of like, I am in so much pain that I can't take this pain anymore, that I'm on the ground asking God, universe, whatever higher power, please help me please help redirect my thinking. Please help me to hold this because this is too big for me to hold. That is when the breakthrough comes comes for me, but I have to be (laughs) in enough pain to get there. And so I think to your point, um, we are just sort of like that dog, like sitting down, like unwilling to budge. And then, I don't know, I have to go to the bathroom. bad enough for something that I'm finally willing to do what needs to be done. Or I'm willing to like, see that, like, actually this was always just about going with the flow of life. You know, I think there's so many things that it's, you know, I, I always use that metaphor of like swimming against the stream with clients, right? Like we are making a lot of things so much more difficult than they need to be just by like, I will figure this out. I will make this happen. I will make this person love me if they could just, uh," you know, or it's just like, yeah, what if I just let go? What if I just stopped fighting and trusted that things will come to fruition in their own divine timing, that everything, you know, there's a natural rhythm to all of this. And I don't have to know, you know, I think so much of the, the suffering is in the needing to know in the anxiety that comes up when we don't know, you know, but we can't know. (laughs) And I, and we're not, we're not built to like that, right? Like we know that humans naturally want to tidy up a story even you know we don't like loose ends so the idea that we don't know how things are going to pan out or or unfold 
is wildly disconcerting for us, mm-hmm. you know, cause uh, I need stability. I need structure. So I'm wondering for, for people who are listening out there and we've kind of danced around a, a handful of different mm-hmm. topics, is there a way or a tool or something that you could give them to help them better pinpoint, here's how I might abandon myself. To me, it's always fear or love, right? So if I'm moving in the direction of, or well, let me back up. If I'm defending against what I'm afraid of, that is information a lot of times that I'm in that realm Mm -hmm. of not being in the space of my authentic self, that I'm sort of people-pleasing or self-abandoning or um, in the codependency realm. Those things are always, you know, normally I find based on what we're afraid of will happen. But love trusts, love allows that flow that we're talking about, right? Um, You know, and I guess example that I'll use is like when my marriage ended and I realized like, okay, this is what is going to happen. We have a little boy and, um, and how can, you know, my, my number one priority is, is like, how do we love each other well so that this little boy will continue to feel that he comes from a space of love. Right. And, um, I did what I, what I do or what I was just saying that I do, I, I got really still and I prayed. Right. And I, and I just asked the universe to help me and, um, clear as day, the universe said, fear, love, those are the options, right? So um, in every moment with this man, whatever the conversation is, you need to get clear. Am I defending against what I'm afraid of? Or am I moving in the direction of the way that I want to love? And, you know, I think um, so much of what was difficult for me about my marriage ending. And I I would actually say most of what was difficult for me was everybody else's energy. So like family of origin energy, the people, you know, in our lives, relationships, and how much like when there's a divorce, it stirs up things for everyone around you. That stuff was actually like the most challenging between us. It was actually really easy because I just focused on the love. And I think that we both were committed on like, how do we transition into a friendship with as much love as we possibly can? And then all the things that, you know, came up, you know, he has um, a new girlfriend who like initially, you know, like watching an- another woman with my child, like all of my mom things started to come up and I was like, Ugh! and then what would love say? And I would soften into how do I love her? You know, how do I look for what is like beautiful about this woman and why it is a lovely, beautiful thing for my child to have as much love in his life as possible. And now I'm like obsessed with her and she's like just such a beautiful energy in my life. But I think so often, you know, we'll make an alternate choice because it's like my ego wants to feel like, oh, I'm going to be replaced or that, you know, person is somehow minimizing who I am, but that's all fear. You know, the love sort of invites us to come back into the higher truths of who we are, I find. Brilliant. Well, you know, I'm curious what you think about this because I often talk about how you can't call upon courage. You can't be brave unless fear Mm. is there. So I'm wondering how you, what your perspective is around having uncomfortable emotions and still choosing something different. Like I, I don't think for one second, when you're telling me those stories that you have eradicated (laughs) fear that it's no longer there. (laughs) So I don't, I don't want to give that perspective of like, Oh, we'll just pick love and Oh, easy done. I think it's, it's 
understanding like, okay, here's both dichotomous emotion, right? There's two things coming up as options. I'm feeling this sense of fear and giving space for that, but then behaving from a different place, behaving from courage, behaving from love. So, you know, Liz Gilbert talks about it so brilliantly about like, oh yeah, you're going to be fear. You're going to be a part of the journey. You just don't get a Mm -hmm. vote. You know, you just don't get to dictate my actions, but I recognize you're going to be here. So is, is there anything around that, that for people listening, like how to maybe allow both things and then still choose? Yeah. the most empowering. Yeah, I I think that is absolutely true. And what I love to say with clients is let's let fear have a voice. You know, I think that is oftentimes our shadow work is sort of, um, you know, if our shadow thought is that I'm not enough or that, you know, this, this other woman is, is more beautiful than me and my child's going to adore them because they're fun or younger or whatever the story is that I'm telling myself. Right. Um, I love to workshop the fear. I love to invite the fear to like, come on fear. Like, let's have a seat at the table. I would love for you to be heard. Tell me the story, you know, like to use our girl, Brene, tell me the story that, you know, you're telling yourself or you're attempting to tell me in this moment about, about what I'm afraid of and why, right? I love Byron Katie's work around workshopping thoughts and like, you know, is it true? Mm -hmm. How do I know that it's true? How do I feel in my body when I believe that this is true? And then what would I be without the thought? You know, if I actually workshop the thought, if I actually allow the fear to be heard, because I think so much of the time we're doing this catastrophizing around the fear because it's not actually having a voice. It's just sort of like percolating in the air around us. But if it's like, okay, no, sit down, let's actually talk through this. Like you would, you know, anyone else who is afraid. I think so much of the time we want to shut down what is like, you know, we see people like even all of the things of the division in our country right now, right? Like I just see so much fear a lot of times all around. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if yep. we sat down for a minute and actually said, okay, let's let your fear be heard, right? Let's give it a moment to be expressed, to be felt, to be processed. What does your fear want to say? You know, I think so much of the time it's like, we don't get to say what we're afraid of. We just get to like hold that in our bodies. And so it's like this tension and contraction, whereas it's like, if it gets to be expressed, like on a somatic level, if we allow ourselves to like move into the space of allowing that to move through you, then it just starts to shift. There's like an alchemical shift that happens within us. Um, You know, I keep coming back to these like references and I think it's because it's what's so alive for so many of my clients right now is just like how divided it feels like we are as a country and how much people are feeling like, you know, in their family of origin, people are like vaccine or no vaccine or like all of these conversations that we're having, right? And I find it's just so much of like, I'm afraid that if I sit down and actually listen, like listen and seek to understand versus, you know, just needing to be understood, that something's going to be taken away from me, right? And I always think of like, one of my favorite movies is American History X. Oh, so so good. good. Um, And I always like that movie was so life changing for me because I realized like so much of the time, like, and this is another Brene Brown thing, like it's really hard to hate up close. But when we get a little closer to people, when we say, you know what, I got nothing but love for you, sit down and tell me what you're afraid of, then 
everything starts to shift on an alchemical level. And I think that's the same inside of us. Like instead of banishing our fear to the basement and saying like, no, I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to like allow you to be expressed or felt. We say, okay, come on up. (laughs) let me love you through what you're afraid of versus like hating the fact that I'm afraid, shaming myself that I'm afraid that actually isn't that helpful. But if we sort of say, yeah, I'm afraid because I'm human to your point, fear will Mm -hmm. inevitably come. But when it comes, how can I have a different conversation with myself about it? There's a great analogy or metaphor. Did you ever watch family guy? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So there's, you know, this, this little baby character, if anybody doesn't know, it's a little baby character who has a British accent and who's <laughs> quite Amazing. educated and astute for a baby. But there's this whole scene where he's trying to get his mom's attention. And I think it's such a great example of what fear sounds like, where it's like, mom, mommy, mom, mom, mommy, mom, mom, mama, mama. And it goes on uncomfortably long. Yes. And finally she's like, what? And he's like, hi, <laughs> and runs away. Right. And, and I really feel like that's the voice of fear. Yes. It's constantly saying, but what if, but what if, but what if, but what if they don't like you? But what if this falls apart? But what if your freedom gets taken away or what if whatever it is that it's like, okay, what if I just turned to it and said, what, Yeah, you know, like what's going on? Mm-hmm. It might just laugh and run away, right? So it, the the power gets removed, is what I'm saying. So, so I love this, and I know I know you've talked, you've spoken much about social conditioning mm. that we receive, mm-hmm. also disproportionately as women, and then any other intersections of marginalized identities, right? We're layered onto that if we are a person of color or have a disability or LGBTQ plus. Yes. So can you speak more about that? How does social social conditioning affect us differently where we go, okay, I'm going to peace out on myself? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I have been really passionate about unpacking lately is these masculine and feminine energetics and, you know, they don't necessarily need to be called masculine or feminine because I think that can sort of like distort the, the viewpoint of yeah. like what I actually mean when I say that. So you can say like sun and moon, yin and yang, like um, it's, it's the energy of polarity, right? Um, yes. And all of us have both masculine and feminine energetics within us. Carl Jung was the first one to really speak mm-hmm. to this. Um, but in a wounded patriarchal society, what we have been conditioned to do is completely reject any of our feminine energetics, right? Um, Anything that is feminine. And that goes for, um, like, it doesn't matter how you identify um, in terms of gender. It's all like everything that is feminine is negative. Everything that is feminine is either like weak or objectified or stupid or less than, or, you know, like all of these ways. Overly emotional. All of the things, right? Which are, what are the most fundamental gifts of the feminine? Um, You know, our our turning away from the feminine, I believe is sort of the core of what is happening to us, like mother earth, you know, all of the, the source um, intelligence that we have sort of just like turned away from like the natural rhythms of seasons and how things unfold. And we're going to like have foods from different areas at times that it's not actually appropriate for us to be eating them because we can with science. It's like, All of that natural intelligence being lost comes at a cost to us and our humanity. And 
I believe that so much of what I, you know, the women I sit with are just so deeply in this space of self-abandonment, you know, like an anxiety and dissatisfaction with life that can't be named. Right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, a little while out of my marriage and really like getting curious and until I started to, well, first, like understand, like, this is a pattern. Like there are certain things that are happening, like across the board, like nobody's having sex in their marriage and nobody's talking about the fact that they right. don't want to have sex in their marriage. And the husbands are constantly, and I'm speaking very heteronormatively in this context when I say this, but you know, that the husbands are constantly begging for sex and the the wives are just like, Oh, let me like check it off a list once in a month, once a month. Mm-hmm. And, and why is nobody talking about that? Like, that's a little bit like strange that all of us are so you know, there's certain patterns of like what starts to happen in life that we just accept as the norm that we just start to sort of like, we're basically like sleepwalking through our existence and really dissatisfied with that. But, but why aren't we doing anything about it until we reach that breaking point and it's a wrap. Right. Um, and we're, we're divorced, but what I feel has happened is so many women are sort of like, I'm carrying all of the emotional weight. Right. And so this is like, you know, if, if I'm a mother, um, all of the responsibilities around like the party favors for the class, the, the soccer balls that need to be gotten, the, all of the clothes, all of the socks, all of the things that I need to be responsible for. Like the list never ends of the things that I need to be responsible for. And then I need to stay attractive because if I'm not attractive, then society is really going to judge me for letting myself go. And then I need to make sure that my husband, um, is satisfied in this relationship because if not, then I have to defend against him leaving me for a younger woman or like, you know, all of these, like just the list of things that I am responsible for doing for women just consistently feels like it's never ending. Right. And I remember, (laughs) I mean, this is, it feels horrible to say, but it's the truth. And I think some of these things we need to say when there are truths, um, when my marriage ended, I remember feeling deeply relieved, like, Mm. (sighs) like one less thing on the list. Great. Yeah. You know? Um, yes. And I think so many women, that is the yes. truth of what they feel. I think I didn't understand things like motherhood as being a deeply masculine role. There were so many yes. ways that I was like out of balance. You know, I was raised by like a very strong matriarchal group of women. And, you know, I think like with women of color, like for so many of us, like they're just, we haven't had men in our household. So I know like, this is true of like so many cultures, but certainly um, for black women, this is like that like masculine energy being like all you can identify with is all I was raised with. Like the idea of softening and receiving and um, allowing myself to play or be in any of these feminine energetics. It's like, not only would that be like speaking a foreign language, it was like considered silly in my family, you know, like deeply rejected. And yet so much of what I understand as like my core way of being, I'm I've always, you know, since I was little been hungry for like the imaginal spaces and for allowing myself to play. And like, I love astrology and mysticism and all of these things that like, you know, I'm like the weirdo in my family for all of that stuff. And (laughs) that was the stuff that I like, you know, shamed myself for and relegated to the basement but started to rediscover after my marriage ended, it was like, well, I don't care anymore. (laughs) Like I'm going to start to embrace these, these things that I've longed for. And what I didn't understand until someone started to, um, you know, I started to read Marianne Woodman's work and she really speaks to, you know, what 
a patriarchal culture does to women. And I started to connect the dots of like, this is what happened to me. This is what's happening to us on a collective level. And until we get to the space of figuring out for all of us, regardless of gender, how to integrate some healthy feminine energy back into our world, um, we yes. will all suffer because that I believe is what is happening. We are like in this, you know, if you think of what our society is, it's just a deeply wounded masculine paradigm that we operate from, you know, competition, fear, yes. you have to be number one, you know, like think about our sports, like all of the stuff, it's just like really wounded masculine energy, healthy right. masculine energy holds space, um, responds, like allows things to like be what they are, has a like sense of self that is strong. Um, but that is not what our society has been for quite some time. I agree with you too, that I think part of the vernacular around the semantics of masculine versus feminine is what puts that already wounded masculine on the defensive. And what we mm -hmm. don't realize is what we're saying is we all need sun and moon. We all mm -hmm. need yin and yang. We all need strong and soft. I've always said, can we get rid of these words and start saying strong and soft? Because there are times yeah. like, obviously as a father, you need to be soft with children at certain times. You need to be soft okay. in negotiations sometimes in order to have empathy and connect with the limbic system of the person that you're mm. selling shit to, right? Like, so I think sometimes we get so defensive of like, you're saying men are bad or, and that's not at all what we're saying. Yes. Um, we're Because I think that men or those who identify as men are some of the most persons who suffer under patriarchy because you're not allowed to feel your feelings. Oh my God. You're not allowed to be sensitive. You're not allowed to do anything because God forbid you, you seem like a girl, right? Or you seem feminine in any way. But I think this is really interesting with what you were saying about also just various cultures and growing up in a, with a, a black family. And I may have talked to you about this before about in Brene and Tarana Burke's mm -hmm. recent essay compilation that they put together with all a, a bunch of brilliant black folks speaking about vulnerability mm -hmm. and how it can be wildly healing, but also in some contexts, unbelievably unsafe where vulnerability to me as a, as a white person does not have the, it might, it might have the context of, I might get hurt emotionally, but for other marginalized identities, it's like, I might get hurt physically mm -hmm. if I am vulnerable or if I step into those things. So I think it's just a, it's an important thing to kind of underline that we're not, sadly, we're not all starting from the same place socially, yeah. right? Another thing that I wanted to mention that I thought was really interesting that you brought up. Have you read the book, Come As You Are by Emily Nagowski? Mm -mm. So it's, she speaks to sexuality. And so she was talking about how all things, male sex drive, male experience becomes sex drive becomes sexual experience. So now it's women need to fold into that as the norm, or we see it in fitness, right? A large swath of fitness has been designed for how male bodies operate. They don't take into account your cycle. Mm -hmm. They don't take into account breastfeeding. They just take, you know, it doesn't take into account how female bodies operate. Yes. Um, and now fortunately we're starting to see that it's not always such a binary that 
there's lots of different things that we kind of need to account for. So if we're talking about all of these different things that are coming up that could possibly thwart our sense of inner belonging and have us abandon, have us go, I better fit into this male paradigm. I better not be the too soft. I need to be assertive. I need to be masculine, like to get ahead. I need to make everybody like me. I need to control things. What are your best tips or suggestions for people to not run away from self, to not abandon those needs? Or like you were saying, to tap into, oh my gosh, I love all things woo-woo and <laughs> actually give yourself permission to go forth with that. What would you say to people out there going like, I have done nothing but abandon myself. Where do I start? I would say, start with your should statements. I find that most of the time underneath a should statement is our cultural conditioning, our family of origin conditioning, and start to get curious about what else could be true? Is that my truth? Is that somebody else's truth? Whose voice is that? You know, I think that we will be hungry for something, curious about something, longing for something, but I shouldn't, I should, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that is to me so often where I see us hold ourselves back on in life because there's a story underneath the shoulds of what people will say. You know, I'm, I'm constantly fascinated by how much we are all operating under the assumption that everybody else is sort of focused on what we're doing. And yet right. we're all really focused on ourselves and what we're exactly. doing. And it's like, nobody cares. <laughs> like, nobody cares about you because they all care about themselves. I mean, I'm joking, but a little bit, you know, and right. And we're all defending against other people's judgment. But I find the more that we are, you know, and again, it's, it's not like a linear process where like I've arrived, I'm integrated. Like I, I am in deep self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. It's a constantly, you know, evolving and ebbing and flowing journey. But I find that, you know, it does become a muscle that we build. I do think that I can be in a space of more self-love and acceptance than I used to be more self-compassion than I used to be able to find quicker. Um, mm -hmm. And the more that I'm in that space, I got to tell you, the less judgment I have about other people. And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, if we're able to hold whatever judgments someone else has about me is normally, you know, with, with reverence and understanding about their shadow and about the aspects of themselves mm -hmm. that they're not able to meet yet with compassion. Yeah. Um, and so it's not personal. It's not actually about me. That's right. Yeah. You know, I, I came across when I was doing a little bit of research on this, I came across two really great questions. Mm -hmm. It was an article on National Alliance for Mental Illness. Mm -hmm. And it was an article, or it's called NAMI.org. We'll put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. This gal, uh, Brianna Johnson, had these two questions of one, for what reason am I making this decision? Mm -hmm. And so I think about it as like, what is the fuel that is powering this engine? Is it is it the fuel is guilt and shame and fear and obligation or or is it impact, philanthropy, um, kindness, you know, I think a lot of times we can come back to our emotions. Like, does this feel powerfully? Um, uh, does this feel like a powerful emotional response or does this feel retractive? Uh, so 
tapping into that of like, you know, what reason am I making this decision? And then this other one that she posed, which I thought was very illuminating. If I were the only person on earth, mm-hmm. would I still want to do fill in the blank or not do fill in the blank? You know, essentially if nobody else was looking, if no one else was invested. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's always applicable because we're so tethered to others. Uh, but that may be something else for, for people to kind of check in and just, yeah, you know, I think that second question, um, is really illuminating to me as well, because I find that so often people find a real catalyst for major life shifts or going after something that they've been afraid to do for a lifetime, really through death and through the loss Mm -hmm. of someone significant in their life. And so like, it's a lot of times, um, you know, I hear people say like, I, I, I wanted to do this forever, but it wasn't until my mom passed away because I yeah. guess I was just like a little bit afraid forever of like what my mom was going to think about it or that she was going to be disappointed in me. And, you know, I find quite often if that's the case, and if that's the reason that, you know, we, um, in, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, she says that a woman becomes a responsible adult when she becomes a disobedient daughter. And I think, Mm. you know, in the realm of self-abandonment, I find a lot of these are like, you know, family of origin pressures that we're feeling that are sort of holding us back from living our most authentic lives because we're sort of feeling like my family would really judge me if I did this thing. I know that was certainly the case for me. And we have to show our family of origin, like, I'm going to be okay. You know, like, it's Mm -hmm. always like them wanting us to be safe in this world. They're afraid for us based on their conditioning and what they think will hurt us. But if we sort of stand in our truth, um, standing, even though we're scared and shaking, but if we stand in that truth and say, I'm okay here, like, I believe in my ability to be okay, then they believe in us too, you know? That's beautiful. And I, I will underline again, too, that that's through sometimes decades of practice, right? It's, <laughs> it's the feeling, the fear and choosing the courage anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, it's not even now as somebody who teaches this stuff, it, there's plenty of times when I have a difficult conversation or I'm really advocating for myself mm-hmm. and my heart is racing and my palms are sweaty, but I'm going, okay, I, I, want to fight for my own freedom more than I want to placate or make sure everybody else is taken care of. And I can do that with grace and kindness. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be an asshole. Right. That's another part of the polarity, right? Like, Oh, to get your way, you have to bulldoze, uh, to be articulate or to be assertive. That means you have to be bitchy and screaming and yelling. And it's like, well, wow. What if we just held both of these things at the same time? I think to me, that's just unbelievable power mm-hmm. because you can't be dismissed, Absolutely. right? You can't be dismissed if you're not ranting and raving. If you're just powerfully stating what's true and what you will and won't tolerate, it's like, oh shit. All right. Yeah. Could not agree <laughs> but, more. So before we wrap up and tell everybody where to find, where to find you and stock you out and fall in love <laughs> with you, is there uh, any final little words of wisdom or anything you want to leave everybody with? 
You know, I think it's a little bit like in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy goes back and is it Glenda the Good Witch? I can't remember if it's at the end, but she says, you know, you've always had the power, my dear. And I think that so much of our work is listening to our own wisdom, you know, getting still and really trusting that like, I know what I need. I know what's true for me. Like I've always had everything that I need within me. And to your point, that is a practice and, you know, we will forget and we will begin again. And it's this constant cycle of reminding ourselves of our own power and our own wisdom, but it's always there no matter what. Yeah. That's brilliant. I, I just got this visual of like, it's always there, but sometimes you're actually in the tornado. (laughs) You know, sometimes you're actually spinning in that tornado (laughs) and you sure it's there, but you can't quite really hear it because there's so much fucking noise, but there's still, you know, to, to use that metaphor. But I, I love that because yeah, there's the times when, when you're out of the storm Mm. and you can kind of settle it, you were never without it. Mm. Right. That's brilliant. So, so where's, where can people find you? Where should they stock you out? So on Instagram, I'm Danae.Logan, D-E-N-E. I have a podcast with my girlfriend, Vanessa Bennett called Cheaper Than Therapy. And, um, you know, Amy, you were recently on and one of our favorite guests. And we just talk about all of these things, you know, all of the struggles of what it is to be human. And it's really about, you know, we're both therapists. So it's like, we wanted to sort of like destigmatize and demystify like what we're actually talking talking about with people behind the closed doors of the therapy room. So that's what we do on there. Oh, it's awesome. It's such a, such an important platform to have Mm -hmm. and to get out there because I, being a Gen Xer, you know, I, (laughs) I feel like my experience with therapy early on, it was the only people who went to therapy were kids whose parents were getting divorced and it was prescribed and it was like, go. And then now all of these people now in their forties, and fifties are like, I would never touch therapy because I was scathed as a child. And so I think it's so important now to go, oh, there's so many different modalities. It's all about finding the person that you feel safe with and that you trust. And I'm seeing a therapist and a coach right now. Like, I just feel like it's so incredibly important. Yeah. I think have your team. I think it's such a gift we give ourselves. You know, someone I love, Miles Adcox says, you know, exploring your story and digging in through therapy isn't something anybody needs. It's something everybody deserves. And I just love that. Like, can we give this to ourselves as a gift versus something that like I have to do because something's wrong? Nothing's wrong. It's like, it's, it's exploring myself. It's so beautiful. Oh, I love that reframe. That's brilliant. Oh, I love it. Danae, I could do this for like four more hours. I'm just, I just adore you. And so, uh, we'll, we'll have Vanessa on the show next week, but I really wanted to have you on each of you individually because you both bring so much to this topic. So I can't thank you enough. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been so wonderful. And, uh, so I will let you go (laughs) and, you know, give me a ring if you need me to return the favor ever. (laughs) And, uh, and I will talk to you later, my friend. All right. Thanks so much, Amy. Oh my gosh. I just adore that woman. I am hoping that this was really insightful for you. It's always 
phenomenal for me to hear other experts talk about things through a slightly different lens or different perspective or using even different semantics. So I know that that can sometimes allow different concepts to land differently. So I'm hoping that was the case for you. We're going to be continuing our series on self-abandonment next week. Uh, Danae's very dear friend, co-therapist and co-host of the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast, Vanessa, will be joining us. And following that, I'll be doing a solo episode discussing this concept as well. So in the meantime, please rate, review, subscribe. It means the world to me if you leave us a preferably an iTunes review that tends to have packed the biggest punch. We'll put a note on how to do that in the show notes. Uh, you can find that actually on any page that you need. And come hang out with me on Instagram under at the joy junkie. And other than that, I will see you around these parts next week. Here is to loving and living the most badass life. 